Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. In segment three, we're going to catch up with our old friend Marshall Glickman, CEO of G2 Strategic, for our Glickman Global segment, where we examine an international sports business topic. This week, we're going to discuss the growing trend of airing sporting events live online. In segment four, Sports Sense, another old friend, Darren Ravel. He's the sports business reporter for CNBC. It's been a while since we had him on. He used to be with ESPN. We're going to break down the big business of the Super Bowl. We're going to give you the latest numbers on everything from what you can expect to pay for a ticket to the game to what a commercial will cost you during Fox's Super Bowl 42 broadcast. Ravel will also preview his documentary on Nike that is scheduled to air on CNBC on February 12th couple of other notes, visit my sports business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm joined in studio by Nathan Roach. Nathan, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. A big Super Bowl next Sunday. Yeah, it is going to be a big Super Bowl. And one of the things we're going to talk about in headlines, the TV ratings were through the roof for the conference championships. I know we talked last week how the dream matchup for Fox would have been Brett Favre and the Packers against Tom Brady and the Patriots. But I think because New York is the largest media market in the country and Eli Manning is pretty much of a household name, I think this game's going to get really good ratings. Well, I got to admit, I'm kind of sobbing with the Fox executives. I would have loved to have seen Brett Favre in the Super Bowl, and I think a lot of other general, casual fans would have liked to have seen Favre. The Manning is a household name, but Favre, I mean, he's a legend. The one thing that I just don't like, and I talk about this every year, is I hate the two-week layoff between the conference championships and the Super Bowl. You feel like you lose some of the momentum of the NFL playoffs, and we're just sitting around waiting for the game to start there's all this speculation there's stories that came out this week about tom brady's boot and this cast and he's leaving his girlfriend i mean this is ridiculous let's just play the game i don't understand why there's two weeks in between well yeah and let's also talk about how expensive it's got just to go to the super bowl i mean that's a bummer i could never go to the super bowl anymore it's just too expensive now this game is supposedly going to be the most bet sporting event of any kind in the history of sports they may do a hundred million dollars i'll bet you the patriots win burger oh that's a good one headlines coming up You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs, Themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center, 
passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one, last weekend's NFL playoff games averaged 49.7 million viewers. That's up 10% from last year. This was the most watched conference championship weekend since 1994. Very impressive. Even more impressive, 53.9 million people tuned in to watch the Giants-Packers game on Fox. Nathan, at one point during the game, Nielsen reports that 96.2 million people we're watching Giants versus Packers. Those are Super Bowl-type numbers. Huge numbers. And, you know, I don't think that this is a surprise. Anytime there's storylines with sporting events, you're going to see these type of numbers. you got the Patriots, who are undefeated right now. And then you have the Packers, the great story of Brett Favre and the freezing cold conditions. So people wanted to see both those games for two different reasons. Pats, Chargers on CBS. The ratings weren't too shabby for that either. 44.8 million people tuned in to watch that, as we said, 93 million people tuned in to watch the Super Bowl between the Colts and the Bears last year. That was the most watched Super Bowl in the history of Super Bowls. I fully expect that close to 100 million people will tune in to watch this Super Bowl. It'll be the most watched Super Bowl of all time. I'm going to disagree with you there, Brian, and I like the, the, the media market in New York is huge, of course, but I think there's so many Bears fans across the nation that uh, that's why you got those numbers last year. I have a feeling it's going to be below last year's numbers. The big difference, though, Nathan, my friend, is that the Patriots have attracted the interest of the casual fan because they are undefeated. They're 18 and 0. They're going for 19 and 0. People that don't really care that much about football are saying, "Can they go undefeated? They're going to tune in and watch this or game." Or can the Bears win? That's what they did last year. Our next headline, with its NHL ratings up this season and distribution continuing to grow, our friends at Versus have exercised an option to remain the league's exclusive cable home through 2011. The move does not necessarily close the door on having ESPN return to the NHL's fold, but that has not happened yet. Versus would have to give up their exclusive rights back to the NHL. Now, Nathan... Ratings are up, but they're not up that much. Last year they got a 0.2. This year they're getting a 0.3. Those are still miserable ratings. Well, yeah, you know, Versus should actually give up the NHL because I'm pretty sure more people are turning, tuning into the world's craziest sports videos that they air on that network than they are to the NHL. And if I'm the NHL, I'm begging to get back on ESPN so that they actually become a legitimate league again. Now, Versus claims they are turning a profit with their NHL broadcast, and it's worth noting that the New York Times reports that their subscriber fee have risen from below 20 cents before they got the NHL to 26 cents now that they have the NHL. That's per subscriber. This will be interesting to watch. Again, I think the NHL should play all their games outside in the snow because that New Year's Day game was phenomenal and got the best ratings in years. I'm not going to lie to you, Brian. I agree with you, but that's going to be kind of tough to do down in California. Yeah, I I don't think there's going to be any snow in California, but the NHL, I'm sure, is wishing that they could get that kind of interest for all of their games. Our next headline, Barry Bonds asked a federal judge to dismiss perjury charges against him Wednesday, arguing the indictment is, quote, scattershot and noted for its striking and artfulness. Bonds was charged in November with lying to a grand jury about his use of 
performance-enhancing drugs, and in the motion filed in a San Francisco federal court this week, the former giant neither admits nor denies taking the drugs, but argues the questions asked by prosecutors during Bonds' December 2003 grand jury appearance were vague, ambiguous, and confusing. Now, Nathan, the tough thing with getting someone on perjury charges is you've got to basically show that the questions were very well understood by the person who was being asked those questions and that the there was no gray area at all. Well, and Bonds reads it like a sixth grade level anyway, so I can understand <laughs> how he'd have a hard time interpreting the questions. But one of the things I thought to myself is if I'm Barry Bonds and I am taking steroids, I tell my trainer, I don't know. I don't want to know what you're injecting with because if that happens, then I perjure myself if I'm asked in a court of law. But if Bonds legitimately never heard Greg Anderson say, I'm giving you steroids, then he does, uh, he does have a little bit of a case there. This will definitely be an interesting uh, procedure to watch this fall coming to a courtroom new year in, in San Francisco. Uh, our next headline... More news from the courtroom. Former NBA referee Tim Donaghy sentencing on two felony charges stemming from a basketball gambling scam have been delayed again until April. Donaghy, who pleaded guilty last August to conspiracy to commit wire fraud and transmitting betting information across state lines, is scheduled to be sentenced at 9 a.m. on April 18th in New York. Now, Nathan, the NBA wants this to be over with, and they want it to go away ASAP, but it continues to drag out, and when things like this make the news on shows like this, that's bad for the NBA. Well, and I don't want to downplay this scandal, but I don't think it's as big of a deal as what the media has made it out to be. I think that, yes, this guy, he committed a crime and should go to jail and pay the price for it, but this does not affect the NBA as a business and as a league right now, I don't think, the way that it has done. Well, so far, there have been no other officials found guilty of uh, committing the the fraud that uh, Donaghy did, so that's a good thing. But, uh, you know, one, one thing it did show, and we've talked about this on past shows, is it showed a breakdown of security in the NBA league office. Donaghy faces 25 years in prison and up to a $500,000 fine. Our next headline, Major League Baseball announced this week that the Dodgers and Padres will play two exhibition games in China on March 15th and 16th. Uh, Dodgers manager Joe Torre, Padres VP Dave Winfield were on hand for the announcement. Nathan, this will mark the first games that Major League Baseball has ever played in China. And I can tell you, as someone who was there in September, Major League Baseball has little to no presence, much like the NFL in China. So I think it's a very good decision for them to play some baseball in China. Well, and we've bashed Major League Baseball this whole year, so I'm going to go out on a limb. It's not really a limb, but I'm going to say, you know what, this is brilliant on Major League Baseball's part. There is such a huge market for sports in China right now, and Asia for that matter, that they should be moving in that direction. We see the NBA do it. We've seen the NFL do it and Major League Baseball needs to jump on board. Well, and this is going to happen in advance of the Olympics. So all this year there's a buzz about sports in China. So I think there will be a lot of interest for this game. I would expect that they sell a lot of tickets. Obviously, they've got 1.3 billion people in China, so I doubt it will be hard to sell out the 12,000-seat stadium that they're playing in. Our last headline, speaking of China, some of the 10,000 athletes expected to participate in the Olympics this summer are going to come to the city just 72 hours before the first event. Nathan, at least 20 countries, including Great Britain, Sweden, Germany, and Brazil, will train in Japan, while the Netherlands and Switzerland will be among the 15 countries training in South Korea. The U.S. team is going to train in Dalian, China. Now, 
This is not good news, Nathan, because a lot of the countries are not going to have athletes at the opening ceremonies, and China is all about how things look. And if the opening ceremonies are boycotted by a lot of the athletes because they don't want to breathe the air and they don't want to come in right before the competition, that doesn't make the Chinese Olympics look very good. Well, what about the sponsors, too? I mean, if I know that athletes from the U.S. are not going to be there during the opening ceremonies, I'm less likely to tune in as a casual Olympics fan to those opening ceremonies where these sponsors be represented. I mean, I think that we're going to see athletes come in, compete for a day or two, and leave. A lot of times during the Olympics, athletes want to experience the entire Olympic experience, and this is not going to be the case here. No, and I've been saying this ever since I returned from China in September. The underlining stories of the China Olympics, remember I said this, air pollution, censorship of the media, the political protests, and then also the explosion of commercialism and consumerism in China. These games are really going to mark a new start for China. They're a communist country. We're going to see companies coming in there and selling them products and educating them on products. And now the Chinese are really going to start to embrace consumerism. But, you know, you got to wonder, and this is something we're going to talk about next with Marshall Glickman in our Glickman Global segment. Toronto and Paris were the runner-ups for the 2008 Olympics to Beijing. With all the things that are going on, with the air pollution, the traffic, the political protests already taking place... I've got to wonder if the IOC didn't make a mistake. I, as a fan, I'm thinking the IOC did make a mistake. They should have had it in Toronto. They should have had it in Paris. Because now I'm skeptical, like you said, about the consumerism and about the censorship issues. What am I going to read that's coming over there? Coming up next, Marshall Glickman. He's the CEO of G2 Strategic. He's going to join us for our monthly look at global sports business topics. Glickman Global. Coming up next, you're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000, the year before you bought the Mavericks. They were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> Or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. For an international outlook on the world of sports business, Sports Business Radio presents Glickman Global. My guest is Marshall Glickman. He's the CEO of G2 Strategic. He joins us every month to discuss global sports business topics. You can find him online at g2strategic.net. Marshall, Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year, Brian. So NBC 
has announced that they're going to air 2,200 hours of live online video, which I think is great. We've seen the success of March Madness. We've seen the success of the Masters Online. But this is really going to be the pinnacle of uh, online content for American viewing. Give me your thoughts on that and just uh, what you think of online content in general. Well, I think it's totally the way... Uh, you know, the market is going and the way it should be going because it gives the consumer control of what they watch and when they watch it. And I think that's what finally, you know, consumers want. It's going to take time for the business structures and models that are the networks and the major media conglomerates of the world, you know, to adapt their business structures to that reality, obviously, because Where's the revenue going to come from? Is it going to come from advertising? Is it going to come from subscription? Um, you know, and and that's the, the the key issue. You know, this how quickly the transformation is made is really going to depend on uh, how much revenue can be generated as a result. Yeah, I mean, things like the invention of the iPhone and uh, mobile devices even are you're able to consume video on your mobile device. Now, you know, it's interesting how NBC is selling this because you can't just buy advertising for the online content. You've got to buy advertising across all their different platforms. That's in contrast to CBS, what they do with March Madness. You can buy ads just for the online content. You don't have to buy the ads on TV. That's going to be an interesting business model, as you said, to see will people make you buy across all their platforms or will they allow you just to buy the online content? Well, NBC has leverage and NBC, um, you know, puts out a lot of a lot of money to obtain the exclusive rights to the Olympic Games. So I can understand why they're using that leverage to sort of force advertising buys to fit into their business model. However, it, you know, in the long run, consumer demand is going to force the networks to change their advertising structure, if you will, to adapt to consumers and what and what advertisers demand because what advertisers really want through the new technology is to be able to pinpoint their message to exactly who you want to reach. And when you want to reach them. So NBC is not accommodating that, even though they can technically accommodate it this time around. But I think in the long run, that's what's going to happen. You mentioned that NBC paid a truckload of money for this. Uh, they paid $1.5 billion for the rights to the 2006 right. and 2008 Olympics. But it's worth noting that they're saying that they're going to make $1.1 billion in revenues in advertising just from the 2008 Olympics, so it seems to be a very good investment for them. Well, it does, and the leverage card that they're playing seems to be working. But I, again, I think eventually consumers, on the one hand, the people who are, you know, absorbing all this content that they're purchasing, all this Olympic content, and then advertisers, on the other hand, I think are going to demand a different uh, model as far as how messaging, advertising messages are delivered. My guest is Marshall Glickman. He's the CEO of G2 Strategic, and he's join us, joining us for our Glickman Global segment. Let's talk more about the Olympics. Marshall, we are reading about air pollution. We're reading about traffic congestion. 
We're reading about how athletes may only spend 72 hours in Beijing for the actual Olympics because they don't want to deal with all these problems. There's political protests. We read about 10 workers that may have died while building the bird's nest and the Chinese government covered it up. There's media censorship. Here's my question for you because I wrote about this on my blog this week. When they were choosing the host city for the 2008 Summer Olympics, Beijing got 56 votes, Toronto got 22, Paris got 18. Did the IOC make a mistake? No. Why? Because there's 1.3 billion people in China. I mean, it's very simple math, and those 1.3 billion people are you know, becoming wealthier uh, every year, and they're consuming. And, and, you know, this is a, a capitalist world that we live in. So that's the plain reality of it. Should they have considered the fact that the intense air pollution, I've not been there, but I understand from you and others who have been there that the air pollution is, what is it, on par with Mexico City? At least. Okay. So, you know, but I think the Olympics were in Mexico City how many years ago? It's been a long time. Uh, 68, it was, I think. Yeah, it was back in the 60s. But I'm sure, you know, the pollution was pretty heavy then, you know, and, and they've been in L.A., and I realize L.A. is not the same. But um, I think at the end of the day, I mean, should the bad air in Beijing been a reason not to go? Perhaps. But, you know, it's, we're, it's too late. We're, we're, you know, the, the movement is way out over its skis. The fact is it's a commercial, and it's nothing but money, and money drives it. But do you think we'll see, you know, the amateur athletes, I'm sure we won't see, but, you know, you look at some of these NBA athletes and the professional athletes, do you think we might see anyone boycott? I mean, already Justine Ennen has said that, hey, I may not go because I'm not too fond of the air over there. Well, the basketball players get to play indoors, so they'll, they'll play in artificial air. So I'm not Well, so but they're not going to walk around in a plastic bubble all week while they're there. I mean, they're going to have to go outside eventually. Why? NBA players is what they do. They hang out in their hotel room and they go to play <laughs> basketball. That's all they ever do, right? And walk around shopping malls. Well, mean, the, the, other thing, the good boys. Well, the other thing is, too, is BOCOG, the Beijing Olympic Organizing Committee, they've already come out and they said, we don't want any of the athletes to wear those little masks. I mean, when I was in China, you see people walking down the street wearing these little masks to cover their face so they don't have to breathe the air. Well, they don't want that because the thing that you got to understand about China and the government is it's all about how things look. I mean, one of the things I've talked about since I came back is they've studied weather patterns. They're shooting mercury into the clouds. So for the opening ceremonies, it rains, and it looks like it's clear when you watch on TV. It's all about how it looks. Isn't uh, communism wonderful? It's different, and I think that's what's going to be very different for the media and for the tourists, frankly, who are going over to Beijing to go to these Olympics. I think it's going to be a whole different ball game that many people have never experienced. I want to ask you one last question. You work a lot with the governing bodies of tennis. The Australian Open is going on. Uh, it's coming to a head this weekend, and I think... It's a great thing for women's tennis that we're seeing two of the most beautiful, marketable women in tennis meeting in the finals of the Australian Open. Uh, it's Maria Sharapova, who makes $20 million a year in endorsements, and then Anna Ivanovich. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. She's got deals with uh, Adidas and many other companies. Isn't this great for tennis, don't you think? Well, I think so. I mean, I think, though, that you and I – the point of view that you and I share probably is controversial. At least I, I know it's controversial. 
I mean, there are people that think that this game ought to be about tennis. But they're good tennis now, players. They're not just pretty. They're they're good tennis players. Well, I understand, but the reason that that Maria is getting twenty million dollars endorsements is sort of the tennis is a little bit beside the point, isn't it? No, because Anna Kornikova got a lot of money, but she didn't get that kind of money because she didn't win events. Well, I understand. So it's a combination of the two. So all I'm saying is, if you're the same quality of tennis player as Sharapova or Ivanovich, but you don't have the looks to go with it, you're not making anywhere close to that money. So I think there's a lot of jealousy amongst the women tennis players. In fact, I, I've, I know that. I've, I've been around it working in tennis circles, and I think there's a lot of controversy uh, about, you know, Sharapova doing the, you know, the SI swimsuit shoot. And, you know, I was at a photo shoot um, in Madrid two months ago with, e, you know, standing next to Ivanovich, and, you know, she is a beautiful woman, no doubt. And, you know, this photo shoot had very, very, very little to do with tennis. Um, and, you know, you, you can see that it was just about, you know, her beauty and her athleticism. But, you know, my argument is this is the definition of tennis today. Tennis, in fact, is the convergence of fashion and beauty and athleticism and human drama. So I think that's what it's all about. So you said, is this good for the sport? I think it's outstanding for the sport. And I think you have the same thing going on on the men's side as well. Some people don't want to accept that and feel that the sport ought to sell itself. The reality, however, in the last, oh, I don't know, decade or so at least, is the sport doesn't sell itself anymore and it has to compete in the real world. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that you just said, and I wanted to note that Serena Williams, Maria Sharapova, they met in the finals of the Australian Open last year, and it was one of the highest-rated women's matches of the year. I fully expect this weekend's match to get great ratings on ESPN, and I'm sure ticket sales at the event are going to be solid, too. I know they've set all kinds of attendance records at the Australian Open this year. And then on the men's side, like you said, Roger Federer, I think he— obviously is the equivalent of Tiger Woods. When he's not in the finals, when he's not in the end of the draw, I don't think there's nearly as much interest because he really uh, is a household name now. Everyone knows who he is, even the casual fan. Don't you agree? Yeah, I totally agree with that, and it has to do with, you know, he carries himself in a certain way. There's a certain dignity. Um, there's a certain way in which he plays that I think is really appealing to people. You know, he's got a, you know, he's a good-looking guy, and but he's kind of not a, you know, he's not a superhuman either. I think people like that about him. You know, he kind of is a fairly normal-looking guy that happens to be an amazing athlete. Uh, and so that has a certain level of intrigue. But I think that this is what tennis needs more than anything. Tennis needs more drama. They need more fetters. It's no good if it's always about one guy. And golf's, you know, had to learn that lesson, you know, the double-edged sword that is Tiger. And so tennis has to be careful that it's not about one guy, and they've got to keep marketing all their personalities. Last word on this. The one thing I will say is that when you're the New England Patriots, when you're Tiger Woods, when you're Roger Federer, and you're chasing history, then I think that attracts even the casual fan, and that's a good thing for the sport. He's Marshall Glickman. He's the CEO of G2 Strategic. Find him online at g2strategic.net. Again, Marshall, Happy New Year, and thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next month. Love talking to you. Thank you, Brian. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Coming up next, Darren Ravel of CNBC.
Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Darren Ravel. He's the sports business reporter for CNBC. It's been a while since we've caught up with Darren. And a little trivia here for you. Darren was the first ever guest on Sports Business Radio back in April of 2004. Darren, thanks for uh, joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Brian, and uh, congrats on the show's success so far. Thank you very much. You know, I want to talk about you for a moment before we get started. Before you went to work for CNBC, you worked for ESPN, and a lot of people are probably interested. Sports business is becoming more prevalent, but several years back, it's tough to get a job in the sports business industry as a reporter because people would say, well, there's not enough sports business stories to cover. Tell us a story about how you wound up at ESPN. Uh, ESPN came to Northwestern in 2000. Uh, they were looking for an editorial intern. I signed up for the interview, went in, said, give me 10 minutes. Here's my deal. I want to cover the business of sports. Uh, the guy there... His name was David Albright. He was a senior executive. He basically said, I'm interested, but, you know, the issue is I don't think we need someone just to cover the business of sports. I was prepared for that. That day on ESPN.com, four out of the seven top headlines on the front page had dollar signs. I said it would make sense if you have someone covering uh, the business because, obviously, you care about it. And he gave me a chance. I went through the rounds in the car wash, so to speak, in Bristol. And then uh, a couple of weeks before I was 21, I got the job. And the rest is history. Now you're the biggest sports or business reporter on the planet. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Let's chat about Super Bowl 42 for a minute. You know, from all accounts, it looks like this could be a record-setting Super Bowl in several regards. Let's first start talking about the Fox broadcast. They're getting $2.7 million dollars. For a 30-second commercial, many of us look forward to these ads as much as we look forward to the game. What's some of the buzz around some of these commercials that are going to be airing during the game? I think uh, the usual, the Anheuser-Busch, Budweiser, as well as Pepsi. I'm looking forward to Sales Genie, Brian, because last year Sales Genie got ranked the worst commercial. It was bad by, by the USA. Yeah, it was bad. It was, you know. Uh, they got like a four. I think like that's among the lowest scores on the USA Today ad meter. That's been going for 20 years, and that's who judges all the commercials. Anyway, despite the fact that they got the worst, now they're advertising even more, and their president told me he's hoping they're the worst again, which is <laughs> ingenious. 
which is ingenious because if you're the worst, it's polar opposites. If you can't beat Budweiser, people might remember the crappiest commercial in the game. And the fact is that last year, although it was not the greatest commercial, in fact, they said it was the worst, it was, you, people got 100 free sales leads that they went to salesgenie.com. It looked like a local commercial. 25,000 people hit their website that day, which was what they used to do in a month. And they might have gotten more return on investment than any other advertiser that they could really correlate to the Super Bowl ad. So I think it's a really interesting discussion. What is a good ad? What is a bad ad? Because the most famous ad of all time, maybe, is the Mean Joe Green Coke spot. Right. And the, the director of marketing at Coke at the time admitted years later that they did a study that found out that that did absolutely nothing to sell Coke. So I, I, I like to talk about a higher-brow kind of conversation, which is what should be considered good and what should be considered bad. Funny shouldn't be the only characteristic. Now, you bring up a good point. Now, Darren, some of these companies go for broke. I mean, they're spending half or a third of their ad budgets on one Super Bowl spot. One such company, Under Armour, they're spending $5.4 million on a 60-second spot. From my research, they spend about $16 million annually. This is a big chunk of change, and their stock plummeted on news of their Super Bowl buy. Yeah, although the stock bounced back, I think, when it got too low. But at one point, it was basically they were getting a $500 million, uh, like, count, they, they were taking $500 million off the market cap of the stock um, just because of the news of them front-loading the advertising, which then, then they had to uh, basically say that our profit is going to get cut by 3 to 5%. Percent, uh, you know, in in the quarter, uh, you know, it's it's just, I, I understand why it happened initially, but ultimately, you you got to go with whether it's a good company or not. The Under Armour ad, I'm not sure how it's going to be received and how much it's going to do for the company. It's because Under Armour has done so much grassroots stuff that when they go big, does it does it resonate? And there's been no company that's done better with fewer ads and less uh, athlete appeal than Under Armour. So when they go big, how do you react? And I think that's going to be a weird situation. They actually have a call to action, which is they're also kind of doing the sales genie thing, which is you can log on and reserve your, your, um, your cross trainers, which come out in May, if you log on and and uh, get in, you know, sometime within the Super Bowl ad time frame, you can get them shipped to your house, so you don't have to wait online in your favorite color, which is which I think is interesting. But I just don't know whether this was a smart buy or not. My guest is Darren Ravel. He's CNBC's sports business reporter. Uh, Darren, let's talk about tickets to the game. Face value on a ticket to this year's Super Bowl is $700, but according to StubHub, the average ticket price is $4,384, and someone this week bought 14 tickets to the tune of $90,000, biggest sale in StubHub history. Looks like this is a pretty hot ticket. 
Don't you think that guy should have like tried to do a sponsorship deal with the stadium? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think that you probably could have gotten for a hundred grand maybe a sign, and I'm sure they had fifteen tickets available. I'm sure if he's spending ninety thousand dollars, he has a he has some sort of business. Or maybe um, he's just a high roller like you, and he's got ninety grand to throw around. <laughs> yeah, uh, not like me, but uh, I'll get into the game even if it's sitting in the bowels of the stadium. <laughs> uh, awful, awful. Um, yeah, listen, this is this is um, obviously highly coveted. Um, what makes this different, of course, is the 19-0. and um, At some point, you would have to believe that every Patriots fan has gone to a Super Bowl game. I mean, it's, it's like... There have been to so many and, of them recently. And if it wasn't for the 19-0 and thing, I think that even with the Giants and the New York market, I think you would you would have seen this fall below, and it still might fall below last year's Bears, um, just because there's this sense that you know I mean four Super Bowls in seven years it's like uh, you know come on already, um, uh, so I think that might come as a discount, but obviously this is this is going to be great for the NFL, um, and it's and it, you know it, it's, the Super Bowl it just shows you how strong the NFL is. If it happened to be, um, you know, teams that were not the Giants and Patriots, the rating would be slightly less, but but it wouldn't be a big deal. You had an interesting story on your blog this week about how the winner of the Super Bowl can sometimes predict the direction of the stock market. You call it the Super Bowl indicator. Most of the time, it's it's most. I think it's like uh, when it when it count when when you could get an NFL team, an original NFL team against an original AFL team. More than 80% of the time, if the NFL team won, uh, the stock market, the Dow, would go up that year. And if the old AFL team won, it would go down that year. Um, and so we want the couple. Giants to win, right? What did you say? We want the Giants. Well, you want, right, so you want the Giants to win, um, you know, which which sometimes I think is, you know, when the, when the Yankees win, like, do you look at Wall Street and people maybe feel better about themselves or um, – it's, it's, I think it's a double win because the Giants are, are the, the NFL team and the Patriots are the AFL team, but it's also for New York because maybe it picks up the spirits of the guys that are physically on the floor, even though that seems to be a dying science with the age of the Internet. Let's talk about Brady and Eli Manning for a moment. You know, those guys do well with endorsements. I think Eli Manning has a real opportunity here if the Giants win this game, and he was MVP, to do real well, even more with endorsements. Obviously, he takes a backseat to his brother Peyton. But, you know, we always seem to see a star emerge from the Super Bowl, someone who we didn't think of, and then they go out and get some endorsement deals. Any bets on who that might be this year? Well, the guy who's going to make the most money from a Patriots win that he wouldn't have made if he weren't on the Patriots is Wes Welker. Yeah, that's a good call. And the reason I say that is not because he'll be in any single ad, but if the Patriots go 19-0 and you uh, want an autographed football, Wes Welker is in a position where he has to be on the football. And so... He's a guy who, you know, Randy Moss would have commanded value. Tom Brady, fine by themselves. But, but Wes Welker's signature could have sold for 3 bucks before the season. He's actually in a position of negotiating power. So I think Welker's a guy who could really benefit. And Eli Manning has a long way to go. 
I think he's been in ads because of just being uh, in the family. Uh, Peyton Manning was really, really dull, and he managed to go with the plot of the commercials and have a personality. Eli just does not have a personality right now, and if he wins the Super Bowl, um, you know they got to write some tremendous scripts for him, make it really funny, and get him an acting coach because he has a long way to go. Yeah, I would agree with that. We're joined by Darren Ravel. He's the sports business reporter for CNBC. Darren, we've got about two and a half minutes left. You have spent the last few months traveling the globe putting together an incredible documentary about Nike that's going to air on CNBC on February 12th. Give us a little bit of a preview of that. Uh, well, we just, you know, kind of, it's the most in-depth piece into this to this engine um, that you well know yeah. and have worked with. Um, and we go into the skateboarding business and how they conquered the skateboarding business after the fourth or fifth time, and we go into the, uh, Michael Jordan and the business of Air Jordans. I mean, I think, you know, there would there'd be, most people would go, okay, let's go after LeBron. But the fact is that 40 of the top 50 signature basketball shoes in 2007 had the Jumpman on it. That's that not a surprise. That is amazing. Guy hasn't played a game since April 2003. Um, and, of course, with Air Jordan 23 coming out, we check in on their labor. I mean, it's been this black hole of reporting right. ever since what, what had happened you know, in the late 90s when they were classified as the worst. Now they're the best in their industry. We checked up on them. Uh, we went to factories. We talked to workers. Um, there were still issues, um, mostly wages and, and, and things that um, they acknowledge will, will kind of almost never go away. Um, but, but by most accounts, they're the best in this. So I, I, think it's, I think it's just a really comprehensive look, more comprehensive than ever before, certainly on TV, of a company that has ingrained itself into sports and sports business and is just firing on all cylinders and no one's even close. They have no competition, zero, at least in the U.S. Yeah, they are dominant. Uh, Darren, plug your blog. How can people read your sports business blog? I enjoy that. Uh, it's just the easy way. It's just DarrenRavel.com, D-A-R-R-E-N-R-O-V-E-L-L.com. And the Nike documentary is at uh, 10 p.m. and 1 a.m. on uh, February 12th slash 13th, and it will run probably um, eight times over the next month, over after that. So set your TiVos for that. I'll definitely be tuning in. I wish they would have given you two hours instead of one. Darren, I really appreciate you joining me. Guests appearing during our Sports Sense segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses. Morton's the steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to mortons.com. Again, Darren, I really appreciate you making the time to catch up. Good luck with that documentary and have fun at the Super Bowl. And thanks for the gift certificate from Morton's. I think I'll take my fiance out to get a the four-pound lobster that I never let her get. Ah, there you go. Excellent. Enjoy your dinner, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. You got it. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be back with our final segment. This is 
is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. We live in an age where everything is on the record. What we say anywhere, whether it's in an elevator, in an email, or during a conversation with a reporter, is now being broadcast instantaneously on YouTube, in a blog, or through the mass media. It's easier than ever to spot someone who has been traditionally media trained and is just giving you that same old boring PR speak. I want to help you navigate the tricky media landscape. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form Evergreen Media Training. Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training, monitoring, and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. We are back with our final segment on this edition of Sports Business Radio, and I love this story. Uh, I saw it this week. IUPUI basketball coach Ron Hunter coached barefoot in the team's game Thursday night against Oakland University to raise awareness for children in need. His goal is to send more than 40,000 pairs of shoes to Africa in February in honor of the 40th anniversary of the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. Hunter is working with a Charlotte, North Carolina charitable organization called Samaritan's Feet, whose motto is give a shoe, change a life. Samaritan's Feet wants to send 10 million pairs of shoes to children around the world in the next 10 years. Hunter reached the 40,000 pair mark after Converse donated 15,000 pairs of shoes on Thursday morning. In addition, those wishing to donate can go online to Samaritan'sFeet.org. That's Samaritan'sFeet.org. Kudos to Converse for stepping in with the 15,000 shoe donation. That's terrific. So Super Bowl 42 coming up next weekend. We gave you a lot of information on our show today. We'll have even more for you next weekend prior to the Super Bowl and uh, it should be a record-setting Super Bowl, as we've discussed this week. Lots of thank yous, Marshall Glickman, Darren Ravel from CNBC, our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harrison, Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, ProTrade.com, and Evergreen Media Training, a podcast reminder. You can catch our show on demand via podcast anytime you want. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. We're one of the highest rated podcasts on Apple's iTunes. You can find us there as well. I'm Brian Berger. Have a terrific week. We'll talk to you next weekend. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. Saturday. That's why you're a smart business person. <laughs> or at sportsbusinessradio.com. <laughs>